Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, Congressman Jim McGovern's take on last week's landmark Supreme Court decisions. And I'll take you to my branch of the Springfield Public Library to talk summer reading, yearbook archiving, and ice cream. And despite the fact that a bunch of really great performances have already happened there in the last few weeks, Tanglewood's opening night is technically tomorrow night. And joining us is our official Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. The maestro will be behind the baton for Ragtime, the symphonic concert, this Saturday. Thank you so much for joining us. Maestro. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm glad you had me back on. I, I didn't know whether you were going to keep your promise about the official correspondent. You made the promise to us, and we were so honored. So I we're, know. We're, so, of course, we're taking advantage. Absolutely. Glad <laughs> to have you back on. What we do. Even if you're tired from teaching a class around 1 o'clock and rushing back to the Berkshires from the from Cape Cod. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a tough couple of days. We had this little thing on the Esplanade, you know, on, on what's Tuesday night, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> With cannons. Cannons and fireworks yes. and all that. Is it still thrilling for you as a conductor to be uh, a part of that? I mean, I bet uh, Khalees and I both went to that kind of thing as a kid, and mm-hmm. now you're, this is, was your 28th time conducting the Pops for the uh, 4th the of 20, July concert. 28th, and that's not even, that's not counting 2020 when we didn't do anything, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, different parts of it are thrilling, I suppose. I mean, you know, some of the gee whiz kind of, part has has worn off a little bit in 28 times but uh it's like you know riding the same amusement park ride again and again and again but i think the thing at the end of the day that really um thrills me about it is uh how how many people how much it means to so many people Mm -hmm. and uh, seeing those people who are so into the concert and so so and and all together in this this peaceable assembly with hundreds of thousands of people in it and feeling that we're at the center of that is is a great feeling. A peaceable assembly with cannons, with cannons and fireworks, cannons, yes. but they are in the right. actual score, so you know yeah. you have to have them. I mean, that to me would be the most thrilling part. As somebody who's never conducted an orchestra, when you've got cannons <laughs> synchronized with your orchestra, <laughs> is there always is there a little worry that the cannon operator is not up to speed in regards to their uh, their tempo? Well, you know, there's a um, there's people. Some people are very tr- try very hard to get them exact until you, know, you realize at the premiere that Tchaikovsky's would have been fused. Uh-huh. Yeah, like you would have lit the fuse, <laughs> so you know that they weren't coming in precisely on the end of two. You know? <laughs> so I always tell people that I say you got to realize that this is written with a with a certain like you know fudge factor. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with the Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. Tanglewood opening night officially is tomorrow night, and you will will be uh, conducting Ragtime, the symphonic concert, this Saturday. It was specifically in, uh, prepared for the Pops by the original composers of the show, uh, Stephen Flaherty, um, Lynn Ahrens. It's a Terrence McNally book. Uh, were you involved in the creative process of turning this into a performance specifically for the Pops? Not so much in the creative process, but I was involved in uh, convincing the people you just met, uh, mentioned to to do that. Mm. Uh, we we thought, I think, probably five years or so ago, that a musical we thought was really important that we would love to present at the Pops was Ragtime, and then of course realized that it is of of all Broadway musicals, it must be in its original form one of the least. Uh, workable that way it's just too few <laughs> it's sprawling it has a cast of like 65 or 70 it goes over three hours there's no way you can compress that down 
uh, onto the stage in any way that does justice to the original. So we went uh, back probably five years ago to uh, Stephen and Lynn, who have done a lot with us uh, over uh, over the years, and said, gee, we'd love to do Ragtime. Can you think of a way to cut it down so it's coherent uh, and tell the story in a way that allows it to, to fit in our parameters? And they said, that's a great idea. We think we can do it. And they went to Terrence McNally, who, you know, was a legend of the American theater and asked him to do it and he jumped in with both feet and it's one of the poignant things about that is that we were supposed to premiere it for my laughable 25th anniversary year which was supposed to be celebrated in the spring of 2020 ah, well ah. you can imagine we didn't have a spring of 2020 <laughs> so and we have these very we have box after box of these very sad brochures that my, <laughs> <laughs> collector's you know, items now that's what I was going to birthday, say Exactly, birthday birthday party that nobody came to. Um, <laughs> the uh, but I was sitting with Stephen and Lynn in on I would think oh, probably the ninth of of March of twenty twenty, which as you know was like three days before the world shut down. Yeah. Basically, mm-hmm. we were at a, a, a having cocktails at a restaurant in Florida, and they said they had heard that Terrence McNally was very ill, and it turned out that he was one of the first well known casualties of the pandemic wow. so as far as i'm concerned every time we perform this we're doing it for him and they came up with this brilliant thing and now three years later we finally get to do it <laughs> what's different about doing it this is going to be the second time that you've done it what's different about putting it on at tanglewood than putting it on and in symphony hall well we did uh three performances in tanglewood and uh, excuse me at symphony hall in may and uh and it's of course you're always in a more controlled environment when you're indoors uh the great thing about this i think is that a lot more people will be able to see it and the sales have been really robust so uh that's that's a thrill in itself we had to do some restaging as the stage is configured differently but all small things i think everybody's really excited to bring it here and there's a you know there's a big theater community that comes up in support of of uh you know, broadway type shows up here and i think this you know this is really going to be a hot ticket this year mm-hmm. we're speaking with boston pops conductor and our official tanglewood correspondent keith lockhart um, it's interesting that you wanted to choose Ragtime. I, I love the themes that come up in it. It's early 20th century. It's immigration. It's African-American communities. It's Harlem. It's it's all these musical it's genres. It's class struggle. It's class struggle. Mm-hmm. It's labor organizing. What was it about this that made you want to uh, to put this on the stage for the pops? Well, I've, I've always loved the show. I saw it in its original uh, Broadway production in 1998. And believe it or not, we actually performed excerpts from it on the 4th of July in 1998 um, with the late great in the role of the mother for which she received a Tony nomination mm. and Alton Fitzgerald White who was the Cole House on the national tour uh, who is our Cole House for this production 25 years later which oh, is kind of a, awesome. a nice resonance but you know as we thought about it and you know when we when we planned this this is before um, every this is before George Floyd this is before the BLM uh, became, uh, you know, a, a thing. Uh, all of those, and and but all these things were simmering beneath the surface. We've had very interesting reckonings over these last couple of years, and it it it's more re- the, the the show is more relevant now than it was in 1998 when the the musical version came out, and more relevant than when Dr. O wrote the book. Uh, so many things in this. You know, now that we've been forced to confront 
you know, issues of systemic racism and issues of police brutality. And all these things can be found in this this American story from over 100 years ago. But one thing I really appreciate about Ragtime is it's pretty unflinching with in those things. Some of it is is, is difficult. And there's, a, you know, there's 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 moments where you can't unsee like Brianna Taylor uh, somehow tied into this. But it's also a show of great hope and great optimism. And it, it, I think, you know, the core message is that people can change and they don't, you know, that's, that it's natural for different groups to view the American dream and the pursuit thereof in different ways. But, but it is also possible to develop new attitudes. And uh, that's what I think, I hope, as a society, we're slowly in the process of doing. It feels particularly poignant doing it during the week of the 4th of July when if you do go see the Boston Pops on the Esplanade and you see all those fireworks and you get wrapped up in the music, it makes you believe in the ideals that are spelled out in the Declaration of Independence, despite how many times over and over again this nation has seemed to struggle. Ragtime does the same thing in that same week. It is, as you said, unflinching about a lot of those flaws, but still leaves you ultimately with a sense of hope of what the country could be. And I, I always say when we do the 4th of July that uh, well, the America we celebrate is an aspiration. Uh, yeah. And uh, that uh, because people, you know, in some of these, they've said, well, how can you even celebrate anymore? I said, you know, it's never been about, uh, at least for me, about rah, rah, we're great. It's more about, you know, rah, rah, we have real possibilities here. And that, you know, it's a recommitment to everybody, I hope, and bringing people together from a fairly broad spectrum to say, you know, we have these common goals and let's let's work on them. Let's not give up. We're speaking with our Tanglewood correspondent, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart, who will be behind the baton for Ragtime, the symphonic concert this Saturday and this the official opening week of Tanglewood. So with pieces like this, especially like ones that are ported out from Broadway pieces, there's always some staging of the actors who are singing behind you in front of the orchestra. Is that ever distracting while you're working? Or have you, <laughs> Who's moving over there? It's like, oh, well, no. like, <laughs> or is it, is it cool, like, in, in the middle of something that you know, like, they've, that the, the pops have got the groove of, do you get to, like, peek around your shoulder and see what they're actually doing? <laughs> well, I do, a, I do a lot of over my sh- shoulder conducting just in terms of keeping things together and, and being aware of that. But it is, it is you know, it's, a, it's more awkward than doing it from a pit. But uh, I, I love the way this, this show turned out, and I think the audience is going to, too. Yeah. It's interesting that the stage director, uh, Jason Daniele, his uh, late wife was uh, uh, Marin Maisie, who you mentioned before, who played Mother in the original Broadway production. Does that bring a different level of depth and personal uh, depth to this particular production? Uh, certainly for Jason. Jason and Marin were very good, were very good friends of mine and uh to watch jason and and marin struggle with her illness over uh over years and watch her keep you know bouncing back off the mat i performed in uh several successful concerts in places as far flung as prague while she had just cut finished uh, rounds of chemo that i think would have tipped everybody anybody else over she mm. was really a force of nature and i know as a result of her association with it and her Tony nomination for the role of, of the mother, uh, I know this piece means a lot to Jason, uh, and uh, so it's it's been fascinating working on it uh, it with him, and uh, it's you know it gives even another point of emotional connection, I suppose. 
Before we have to let you go, Maestro, we're talking with Keith Lockhart, the conductor of the Boston Pops, our Tanglewood correspondent. You've got ragtime this Saturday. A couple other highlights in the near future that you'll be involved with at Tanglewood that you're particularly excited about? Well, sure. I should also tell you that, of course, as you said, Tanglewood officially opens tomorrow night, and it opens with Andres Nelson's conducting, with Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony, with a piece by Wynton Marcellus, and with Daniel Trifonoff uh, playing uh, the, one of the Prokofiev piano concertos. And on Sunday afternoon, uh, we have uh, Andres on the podium again, uh, my colleague and boss, I suppose, uh, <laughs> in the concert uh, featuring uh, the debut of uh, renowned American soprano Julia Bullock on that program, uh, and the music of Brahms, the music of Jesse Montgomery, and a new, uh, a new commission uh, by Iman Habibi, uh, which uh, is, has to do with the uh, recent uh, Iranian uh, women's movement, the protests about- Oh, wow. Uh, Wicked yeah, cool. About, yeah, so it is a lot of interesting stuff going on. And I'll be back next Friday um, with uh, with uh, Jean-Yves Thibaudet and Michael Feinstein doing a, a concert of all Gershwin that I think everybody will enjoy. Oh, that sounds really exciting. I always imagine uh, all of you like that it's at band camp, that it, <laughs> Tanglewood is band camp for the for the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Pops. And I hope it is. It's you know, it's 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 five star band camp. <laughs> I hope you have the best time during band camp at, at Tanglewood with your incredible band, the Boston you Pops. You come back with stories. And as we mentioned, Ragtime, the symphonic concert is this Saturday. Thank you so much, Maestro Keith Lockhart, our Tanglewood correspondent. It's great to talk to both of you guys again, and we'll see you out here, okay? Indeed. Indeed you will. Coming up. Summer reading program at Springfield Library, but up next, our weekly talk with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. <laughs> You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts and the ranking member of the Rules Committee, Congressman Jim McGovern, who uh, is in the car from his hometown in Worcester, driving out to the part of the district where uh, we represent as a radio station, the western part of your district. What are you up to today in the district, Congressman? Well, I have a bunch of meetings in my Northampton office, but I also have a, an event I'm going to uh, in Hadley, uh, celebrating His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's 88th birth anniversary, and you know, looking forward to uh, to being with the Tibetan community, a community that um, I think I, I cherish and and then to celebrate this special day. We've had uh, some members of the Tibetan community on this show in months past, and uh, we did talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding the Dalai Lama, but talk about your relationship with the Tibetan community in particular in our part of the state, in Amherst and the surrounding areas. Well, as you know, there's a vibrant Tibetan community in the western part of the state, and I you know, really uh, enjoy meeting with them. And, and, and we have worked together on uh, legislation to try to not only protect the uh, Tibetans uh, who are being targeted by the Chinese government, but to also uh, to celebrate events like the one we're celebrating today. You know, I was one of the, uh, I think I was part of a delegation with Nancy Pelosi. We were, the, we were the last congressional delegation to ever be allowed into Tibet. And then I also, uh, a few years later, went to visit His Holiness of Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, India. Uh, and had a very, very powerful meeting uh, with him. Look, this is a, a man who stands for peace and justice and love. It always strikes me as odd that the Chinese government that represents this big, powerful country uh, is afraid of this 
elderly, gentle, wonderful monk. They're so paranoid over him. But, you know, all he has been about and all his life is about is about justice and love and, and peace. And, and that's something to celebrate. And, and that's one of the reasons why millions and millions and millions of people all around the world are inspired by his example. Speaking of justice, we talked last week, uh, the only Supreme Court ruling that had come out of major note that was getting national headlines was the 6-3 ruling on the independent state legislature theory, which basically said that state legislatures cannot override their own constitution or the federal government in regards to ways elections are conducted. After that, though, in anticipation of the long Fourth of July weekend, where maybe um, fewer people would be paying attention to it, a bevy of rulings came out that I can only imagine, Congressman McGovern, were not the kind of rulings that you were hoping for in regards to things like affirmative action, student debt, same-sex service and public accommodations. The president told reporters after these decisions came out, this is not a normal court, and then went on MSNBC to say that the court has ruled on a number of issues that have been precedent for 50, 60 years sometimes, and that's what I meant by not normal. Across the board, the vast majority of American people don't agree with majority of decisions the court is making. Let's break them down a little bit, one by one. First, tell me your thoughts on the affirmative action ruling. I think it's an unfortunate ruling. That and, and the other rulings, is, it's like we're, the court is turning the clock back. Uh, in terms of justice and equality, um, I think it's a terrible decision. I mean, the idea that somehow that we're going to erase decades of, of precedent and uh, and make believe like that race is not a factor um, in the schools that people end up going to and the opportunities that may avail themselves to individuals. I mean, it, it, it's like making believe that everything is perfect when we all know it's not. Again, I thought it was a terrible ruling. Do you think that this will have implications? I know that there have already been some lawsuits uh, for places like Harvard that are now trying to kind of countersue in a way to say that legacy admissions should be included in this decision. I know that um, Stephen Miller, who used to work for the Trump White House and is a, a powerful conservative lawyer now, is saying that's not the intent of the ruling, that this should be race blind and it shouldn't have to do with family admissions. Do you think that there could be a potential other side to this ruling? Uh, look, and I, I'm on a bill that uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman introduced to, to go after legacy admissions, I mean, which is basically saying that if somebody went to the, a particular school and if they donated a lot of money to the school, uh, then you get a leg up. How's that fair, especially in the aftermath of this ruling? I, yeah, I don't know how all this plays out. I just know that on a number of fronts, we have watched the court turn the clock back. I would like to think of this country as, you know, why we're not perfect, that we constantly strive for more perfection, that we continue to try to move in a direction where equality and justice and fairness and decency prevail. And unfortunately, we don't share those views. I'll just say one other thing. You know, elections do matter. I mean, this court just didn't mysteriously appear. You know, this is what happened uh, when Donald Trump became president. He appointed justices that are far outside the mainstream, uh, that have delivered these rulings uh, to us that we're talking about here today. These judges are fairly young, and they're going to be there for a long time. And this is a court that is not only filled with extremists, but it's a court that also, I think, is filled with people who are corrupt. The stories that have come out about Clarence Thomas and uh, Justice Alito, I mean, there needs to be some oversight of this court. It always is confounding to me, Congressman McGovern, that if this is such a divisive issue, the Supreme Court, why don't we do something to change it? I think that there are people that want to now stack the court. It's been tried historically before. It didn't work um, in the FDR era. But what if there were term limits? What if every president 
was allowed to appoint two Supreme Court justices that would go through a certain term and they would rotate in and out. Wouldn't there be less of this fear on some voters' perspective that a president should be elected because the Supreme Court is going to make decisions for the next 50 years because these are lifetime appointments? Is there anything that the Congress and you can do to change the way the Supreme Court is structured, apart from packing the courts? Yeah. Well, look, I favor term limits for the Supreme Court and the scenario you just outlined, uh, you know, is something that I think deserves consideration because we don't elect Supreme Court justices. They're there for life. So if you appoint somebody who's really bad, you know, they can be there for many, many, many years. So there needs to be some more accountability, some more checks and balances. And I think these, some of these justices, they, they, they stay too long. I'll even say even some of the good justices sometimes stay too long and create a situation where there is a, a vacancy at, at inopportune times. Yes. But I do think there's something to be said for term limits uh, for uh, Supreme Court justices. You've also got two Supreme Court justices currently that there is a stain on their reputation with Thomas and Alito. Alito, who is right. ruling in regards to things like student right. debt forgiveness, and that also did right. not go the president's way. They ruled that uh, the president's student debt forgiveness plan uh, was not constitutional. But now there's a plan B in regards to uh, student debt repayment, at least. What's your take on the president's plan B in regards to student debt? And tell us a little bit about what that plan is. It doesn't quite get to where we wanted to get to um, originally. But look, the president's trying and he understands that, you know, student debt is crushing for a lot of young people. I mean, the cost of education is through the roof. And when people say, well, don't don't take our loans for an education. Well, how do you pursue your dreams? How do you succeed in this country without an education? I mean, it's, it's, it's like we want to train the best workforce in the world. And yet, you know, we make it almost impossible for people to be able to get the kind of education that they need. You know, if the president had prevailed and the Supreme Court didn't overturn this, this would have ended up with helping a lot of young people buy homes, start their own businesses, be able to pursue other things. And so now he's, you know, trying to address the issue of the interest of the debt and everything he can do to make it less burdensome for people with student debt is a good thing. I'm sure everything he does will be challenged. I wish we had a Congress that would legislate on this stuff. But we have a House of Representatives that can't even pass non-controversial bills, never mind having a thoughtful discussion on this. Speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern, McGovern with McGovern, our regular chat with the U.S. Congressman. You can always send in your questions to the Fab 413 at nepm.org, and I'll ask them on your behalf. A lot of your district is recognized across the country as being an open and welcoming place for LGBTQ folks. And the Supreme Court had a ruling in regards to same-sex service and public accommodations. What's your take on the Supreme Court's ruling on this theoretical web designer who doesn't want to theoretically uh, develop a website for uh, LGBTQ folks? Well, shame on the court. Again, this is turning the clock back. It it really, it's an offensive ruling. And, And the question is, what are the implications for other members of our community? If I don't like you because I don't like your religion or who you're married to or whatever. I mean, should I be able to discriminate against you based on that? This is a slippery slope and this is an offensive ruling. And, and again, it, it's become very typical of this court to promote bigotry um, and to, to basically legalize bigotry. And I, I find that offensive. You know, I don't know what's happening in this country. And I'm, I've, I've been listening to some of the Republican candidates campaign in Iowa and New Hampshire and other places. For some reason, they seem to think that it is politically advantageous to be bigots, to be able to promote 
hate and divisiveness and discrimination. I, it, it is so offensive and people have to push back on this stuff because if not, you're going to see states passing more laws. You're going to see school committees passing more restrictions on what people can read and on what people can teach. I mean, we, we, we should be striving for a country where everybody is respected, where we respect everybody for who they are. And I, I just find what the Supreme Court did to be just horrific, but it's it's being echoed on the campaign trail. And I, I, I don't know why people want to spend all their time trying to find ways to divide this country when we should be spending our time trying to unite people uh, in this country. Another issue that you care deeply about and are constantly advocating for, and I've joined in this cause with the Food Bank of Western Mass. First uh, meeting about the March for the Food Bank 2023 with uh, with them is today. So that'll be oh happening. My, in... my legs are hurting already. <laughs> it's a 42-mile slog from Springfield to Greenfield to raise money and awareness for the good work the Food Bank does. But there's a new report saying that one in three Massachusetts households are now experiencing hunger. Of course, that the rates are higher for Black and Hispanic residents, Sadly, but it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic in 2019, only 19% of Massachusetts households experienced food insecurity. It jumped to 30% in 2020. But now that the pandemic is abating, is, is winding down in some regards, it's continuing to increase 32% in 2021 and 33% in 2022. What are you hearing about why these rates are continuing to increase? And is, apart from voices like you in Congress, are there other folks who are trying to figure this solution out from a Washington, D.C. perspective as opposed to a grassroots sure. food bank perspective? Well, one of the reasons why is because some of the assistance that was provided during the pandemic has basically been stopped. But there I was mean, no assistance uh, prior to the pandemic and the rates were lower. So that makes sense that yeah. it would have gone up and then yeah. maybe gone down. And it did go down when the child well, tax credit right. was enacted in remarkable right. percentages. Right. But some of the assistance that helped people put food on their table has ended we have inflation that is still an, an issue for a lot of families. And the cost of living overall is, 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 is high for people. Sometimes people can't get access to food because of where they live and lack of transportation and other services. I mean, it, there's, there's a, a thousand reasons why. But the bottom line is that it's all solvable. It can be fixed if, if we make it a priority. And we have a Republican House you know, that has proposed a budget that cuts things like WIC and cuts meals on wheels. So I don't think you can expect that this Congress is going to necessarily be the savior. Having said that, there are things on the state level that we ought to get behind. For example, in the state legislature, in the House of Representatives, they have, in their version of the budget, universal free school meals for every kid in this state. You know, we got to make sure the Senate accepts that and that we join other states in providing free meals to all of our kids in schools. That would take a chunk out of the hunger problem in this state. That's something that's going to be decided in the next couple of weeks. So people ought to be advocating for that. You know, on the federal level, we have the Secretary of Agriculture trying to expand programs within his discretion to provide more assistance to people and to provide access to low-income families to healthier uh, foods. Like, we ought to make sure that we don't allow Congress to turn that back. But look, hunger is a political condition. We talk about this all the time. We have the money, we have the food, we have the infrastructure, we've lacked the political will. We did this White House conference. There's a roadmap that was put forward. We gotta make sure it gets implemented. We gotta get as much done as we can with this divided Congress. But some of the stuff that has to be done in the short term has to be done on the state and local level.
Congressman Jim McGovern, speaking with him once a week. If you've got a question for the congressman, you can send it our way, the fab413 at nepm.org. Last question, how'd you spend the 4th of July? I thought I saw some uh, photos or videos of you uh, reading from the famous Frederick Douglass speech. We had some yeah. folks on on Friday about mass humanities uh, and their readings of what to right. the slave is the 4th of July. Well, how did you spend the 4th of July, congressman? So, I, I, so right after I read Part of Frederick Douglass' speech, I went to Cape Cod for a few days and came and drove back from the Cape on the 4th of July to Rutland, because they have a big parade in Rutland, did the parade in the rain, but a lot of people showed up and then drove back to the Cape, and then um, yesterday drove from the Cape back to Worcester. So I spent a lot of time on the, on the 4th on the road. But one thing that I remind people about is that you know for all the challenges that we face in this country, that at least our democracy is still intact. We're still standing on this 4th of July, notwithstanding what happened on that fateful day on January 6th. We cannot take this democracy for granted. We cannot take our right to vote, the right to be able to decide who our leaders are for granted. So there's something to celebrate on this 4th of July. We just need to keep on on building on our progress and we need to fight those who want to turn the clock back. But uh, anyway, I hope everybody had a good, safe 4th of July and survived this heat and I will be around the district quite a bit in the next few weeks and look forward to seeing people in person. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, the ranking member of the Rules Committee, Congressman Jim McGovern. Thanks so much, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. Up next, we get to explore my local library, literally my library, as we visit the Mason Square Library for their summer reading program kickoff party and get a taste for some of the neat and important things they're doing for the community. Including ice cream. Including ice cream. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Maybe one thing we should do, Khalees, after we um, cover all good pizza (laughs) in Western Mass, and eventually our next endeavor is best ice cream, which is kind of why we're here today, is go to every single library in the 413 that would be awesome. I mean, I would be absolutely love doing that yeah. because libraries are the best. We could be the CW Mars system. Like, it I sounds can't, like a, a I planetary system. I can't say system. how much of like all of my summers and times after that, like when I first moved to the Valley, how central libraries were to my entire existence because I couldn't pay for internet by myself. And so like, that's where we go for like job hunting and like reading in my spare time and like just getting stuff done. Like libraries are so incredibly vital to any thriving community, period. And, and when we moved to the Valley, we were so broke, we could not pay to do anything but go to the Jones Library in Amherst and take out all of their DVDs one by one. And a lot of cool libraries in Western Mass. Yes. But how many of them have a reading garden like the Mason Square branch of the Springfield Public Library System? My name's Elizabeth McKinstry. I'm a librarian at the central branch of the Springfield City Library. We have nine locations in Springfield. That's awesome. And of course, like the main library is just like a glorious epicenter of library goodness. It is. It's pretty great. But honestly, all of our locations have great individual personalities. So uh, we've got the reading garden here over at East Forest Park we've got the new maker space at Indian Orchard they've got this amazing glass dome it's a little Carnegie library like so many great things to see at all our locations 
but I especially like this one because this is my branch because it's right down the street from my house. Don't come find my house. Don't come find your house. You know, in addition to the garden, this is also the branch that has the seed library. I know. Someone just told me that I could take seeds and I was like, I have a space where my peppers died and now I need to plant something else. This is perfect. Tell us about the seed library, Elizabeth. Yeah, so every year when it's planting season, we put up a list of all the seeds that are donated from a company. They're organic, non-GMO, and you can pick up to five seeds. And so we have lots of flower and vegetable varieties that people can come just take so they can plant in their garden at home. It's a really popular service. Do you have to return them as peppers? <laughs> no, you, know, you return them as seeds and then they'd keep it going. We're not quite there yet, but you're right. That is that is definitely the goal ultimately. But you know, we produce so much produce in our reading garden here that we have lots to give away ourselves. So, But sometimes people do bring it by, which is really fantastic. So, And we're really here because we heard there was an ice cream social and we came early. We're just going through all the books and Khalees, you already joined the summer reading program. I did. Yeah. It was the first thing that I did when I came in through the door. Was it what I meant to do? No, but I did it and it was very fast and painless. So. Tell us about the summer reading program. You read once a day for 30 days straight, just for 20 minutes, which is not a whole lot of time. I spend, let's not talk about how much time in the morning I spend reading when I really should be doing work or anything else. Dedicating 20 minutes to reading anything and like graphic novels count, the paper counts, like they just want you to actually read and like dedicate your time to it. And if you do it for five days, you get a prize. And then after 15 days, you get another prize. And after 30 days, you get another one. And then there's a end of program roller skating party on the 14th which I super want to go to even though I know I'm going to hurt myself. It's good to try though. Yes. I have knee pads. Mm -hmm. Audiobooks count as well as reading together as a family. If you're reading to someone else that counts as your 20 minutes for both of you but yeah back of the cereal box all of it it all counts. All you have to do is through the whole summer so we started last week through about the end of August you read 30 days during that period for 20 minutes and you're good to go and it's of course completely free to join. You don't need a library card but we would love to get you a library card if you don't have one those are also free to get at the library and the prizes are really fun and you can do it on paper or you can do it in an app on your phone so if you're an app person you're good to go if you like filling out the little circles on the paper log you're also good to go however you roll works for us and now elizabeth who is the training and program librarian for the springfield central branch of the public library system here in springfield you have an amazing historical archival project that you're working on oh my gosh it is so exciting i can't yes Yeah, we have an amazing project. So last year, we reached out to the community in Springfield because lots of people would come to us and ask if they could see yearbooks from when they were in high school or a lot of times their parents or an aunt and uncle, and we just didn't have that collection. And we thought, well, maybe if we just ask. So we reached out to the community and said, do you have yearbooks that you want to donate to us? We will send them to the Digital Commonwealth, which is the Massachusetts Digital Library, and we'll get them all digitized online for free so that if you don't live in Springfield anymore you can still access them and can I just tell you we got almost 400 yearbooks donated over 250 unique items people brought in letterman patches class photos stories graduation programs I know this is going to sound corny but I cannot tell you the number of times I sat at the reference desk and cried with someone who had these yearbooks that were important to someone they loved, that they didn't want to throw out, but they needed to know someone would love and cherish those yearbooks and keep them forever. And that's what we promised to do. And starting on July 17th, we're going to launch
launch a web page on our website so that you can access all the ones we received digitally online. It's very exciting for us. And all the yearbooks that we donated uh, still live with us. Nothing bad happened to them. And you can come take a look at them and visit them anytime you want. And if you want to donate more, we're still missing some years and we happily take duplicates and extra donations. Do you know what years you're missing? Off the top of my head, I don't. I will say the newer years, we really don't have much past like the year 2000, really significantly up through the 80s and then after that because people donated the yearbooks that maybe belonged to their loved ones, but not their own personal yearbooks not for yet. the most They've part. Keep not on yet. To them. Exactly. So, but we're still, you know, we're still working on people, you know, we're happy. The next time you look at it on your shelf and you're like, geez, like I love looking at this yearbook, but I do not love dusting the shelves that these yearbooks <laughs> are on. You know, if you give it to us, you'll be able to see it online digitally from anywhere from your phone, your tablet, your computer, come to the library, visit it in person. Come and visit your will... own old yearbook at your own library. Show it off to all of the other patrons. Yeah, this is the my library. yearbook, everybody. Look what Jeannie said about me at the end of the exactly. school year. Be cool, have a good summer. Uh, was she flirting with me? I don't know. How do I interpret this note written at the back of my yearbook? Exactly. And we, you know, we had retired teachers who donated the collection of all the yearbooks they had their whole year. We often get inquiries via email. And I had a gentleman email me several months ago from France. He was trying to find out information about his mother's high school years in the 1930s. So particularly he was looking for a 1931 yearbook. At the time, we'd already sent it to Boston to be digitized. And so as soon as it was online, I was able to send him links to particular pages. And he learned that she was in the debate club and she was in student leadership and that she had even been in a play that there was a review written in the paper about it. Because once we had that, we could do more looking. So he emailed back from France and he's like, I never would have been able to see this. Thank you so much. I've shared it with all my siblings. You don't know how much this means to us. We just didn't have any of this information before. And you can tell I'm getting emotional, but like, <laughs> but like this is why we do what we do, yeah. right? Is to, is to preserve this stuff and connect people with what they're looking for. I mean, that's our jam, man, right? Like that's why we do it. So yeah, it's been a super, super exciting project. And to be at the point where we're like, yeah, here they are online, go check them out is just, it's been a year getting to this. So really exciting. It's hard to ask you what years you're missing off the cuff, but do you know the oldest yearbook that you've gotten? So we have some some for the 1910s. I want to say like maybe 1911, 1913 in there. Interestingly, they're not actually a high school yearbook. They're fraternity books that sort of predated the concept of yearbooks. So uh, high school organizations, brotherhoods in the high schools created their own annual book of their members and things. So they're almost a precursor to yearbooks, but they really show, show a picture, a window into that time, which is really, really amazing. But you know, so many high schools in Springfield, right? So many, I mean, it would be a whole other project if we did the colleges, right? But like, but so many, I mean, take a look at classical, right? Which is of course across the street from central where I work. Most people know it as classical, but it was actually central before it was classical. So, and, but there was another central high school later. So, so many high schools in Springfield with so many different names. So there's a lot of history there, you know, so many, but honestly, we've done really well with a lot of the runs from like the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and then it starts to get pretty sparse. But as of the 17th you'll be able to look on our website and see what we have and what we don't have and then we're happy to uh, take those in so give them a home and then they'll get sent out in the next batch in another year or so to get digitized love it you said you were getting like letterman like other things that aren't that are like related to yearbooks but aren't necessarily yearbooks do you have any plans to display those 
it is amazing that you asked that question because we are in the process of working on that display as soon as our ice cream social is over. So we plan, there's a lovely set of display cases on the first floor at Central Library and we already have all kinds of plans for displaying those items as of the 17th when we launch it online so that people can come visit those and take photos as well. Some of the things we got, there was a class from the 1940s, I think, where they gave us a whole stack of the individual senior graduating pictures of every senior in these little cardboard frames with like, and everybody signed their photo. I mean, just a lovely souvenir of an entire class. Really stunning that someone would trust us to preserve that and to show that to the community. It's honestly, I'm getting goosebumps, but <laughs> honestly, it's just been the most amazing project. You don't know what's gonna happen when you ask. And then it turns out, that everybody comes through and you just, I don't know, it's the best feeling in the world. Where better to preserve that stuff though than a library? Exactly. That's how we feel about it, you know, for sure. And we, like I said, we do promise to love and cherish everything that comes to us, so. Can't yeah. wait to check it out. Why do you kick off the adult reading, summer reading program with ice cream? You can never go wrong I with said, free food. I said that in a way that makes it sound like I'm disappointed, but I'm not, I'm not, I swear. So historically, we have had some ice cream related programs for the adult summer reading. They tended to be at the end of the summer. And we just, you know, post pandemic, uh, this feels like the first year people are really starting to come back full in force to the library. You know, we had a year where some folks came back, but it's, it's just so nice to welcome everybody back and remind them what the summer reading club is all about which is just, you know, it's summer, it's our bread and butter. We have books, we have audio books, we've got paper, we've got electronic, we've got everything you could want to read. And so don't spend your money at Amazon, come to the library, you know, get it online, get that stuff. So this is a reminder and, you know, lovely donated ice cream from Friendly's does not hurt. That's the hometown ice cream maker, I it guess. Is. Yeah, right. What flavors do we got? Do we know? Is the ice cream being served yet? Are we uh, missing no, it? We're in the, we're in the reading garden outside the Mason Square There's a Library. menu inside with the Sunday cups, but I, I didn't make the menu. Our, our My lovely associate, Gala, did, so we could go inside. You know what you could also look at inside is the What's Your Ice Cream Name board, which is a game you can play with the first letter of your name and the month you're born, one of those. So I have I'll a feeling mine is going to be Kahlua something. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of K flavors out there. No, it's not. it doesn't match. I promise. Oh, okay. I promise. It's like a random one for your first okay, initial great. and then a random one. So. Perfect. Mine is chocolate chip double dip so I'm very happy with my choice. That's a pretty great one. <laughs> I know right I feel like I want to embroider a pillow with that or something. So, Chocolate chip double dip. So, you yeah. should use it at karaoke. Yay. Back into the Mason Square Library what? proper. <laughs> What's your ice cream name? Please? Toffee coffee waffle blast. <laughs> I love it. Okay should I use my real name or my fake? Both. Okay I'm going with my fake name which would be marshmallow rainbow cone. That says me in a nutshell. It does. My name is Gayla Jones. What do you do here? I am a senior library clerk for the Central Library. Nice. And what kind of ice cream are we having here? We have Friendly's Ice Cream Cups. One is a classic hot fudge sundae, and the other one is a birthday cake sundae with vanilla and chocolate and confetti sprinkles. Which one are you having? Br uh, the birthday cake. I love the classic fudge. All right, one of each. Woohoo! Yeah, libraries are awesome. Aren't they? <laughs> Aren't they? Take a spoon. Here's a napkin for you. Thank you. I'm just so glad that this is my library. I know. Like my, that's like lucky. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. You are welcome. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. <laughs> I mean, I am. Take a look. Really.
excited that that is my local library, that it's only a couple blocks away from my house. I'm just excited about the Reading Rainbow theme. I mean, you can be excited about that also. Next week, we'll visit another library. It's been a long time coming. There were a lot of people in the community who wanted to make this library happen. But next week is the grand opening of the Greenfield Public Library. Officially, it opens on Thursday, but we'll be there broadcasting live on Friday. And up next, the tiniest of plywood ramps to the weekend. So, so teeny. We'll tell you all about the fun stuff happening starting tonight, going all the way through the weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPN. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. We're doing a plywood ramp to the weekend, which is how we jokingly used to refer to Thursdays back in my old station. It's the way to get you into the weekend on Thursday evening. And the music you're hearing right now is from Chris Delmhurst, who will be playing this weekend at Black Birch Vineyard. She is a great singer-songwriter. That's a real fun place to go see a show. It is, and they have some really cool things lined up so you can check out more of what's happening there at Signature Sounds Presents. At Black Birch, and that's in Hatfield. Indeed. They Might Be Giants is happening tonight at Deerfield. That show is sold out. But if you're willing to drive a little bit out of the 413 area, their show tomorrow night in New London is not sold out. And you can uh, go back to, what was it, Monday? Monday. Monday's episode of The Fabulous 413 and hear our wonderful conversation with John Flansburg. And if you happen to be lucky to know somebody who is, like, moving their house and uh, getting rid of a They Might Be Giants ticket like our engineer today, Bart, uh, did then you might still be able to get to go see that. Hit up At your friends is what Monty's trying Tree to say. Treehouse in Deerfield. Hit up your yeah, friends. Go on social media. That might <laughs> that might be a thing. Or go to New London. You know whatever. <laughs> uh, Bands on Brewster is a new thing that's happening in Northampton that is being presented by I believe it's the Northampton Arts Council is mm-hmm. helping to coordinate all this stuff. But Indeed. Brewster Court is uh, right there in downtown. Yes, Northampton. that space between the brewery and the. The garage is Brewster Court. Am I right about that? I'm yeah. pretty sure I'm right yeah, about that. Yeah, it's that general vicinity. As right. long as you go to that big parking garage in downtown Northampton, you'll start to hear the music of one of my favorite uh, local bands that doesn't often do anything. And this is their first show in, in many years, mm-hmm. King Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been a, a staple over the years of what was formerly called Trans Performance in Northampton, another Arts Council event. And they always endeavor to take on the biggest bands and perform as those bands uh, I've been collaborating and talking to Frank Padalero from that band today because mm-hmm. we're fighting over who gets to be Neil Diamond this year. Uh, so I may actually be Neil Diamond with King Radio at this year's performance, which will be fun. But King Radio is playing <laughs> at Bands on Brewster tonight, uh, right after the show, essentially, uh, in North Hampton. If you're listening Starts to the 7 o'clock six. broadcast, you might have already missed some oh, of it. Oh, you'll missed, have, have missed some of it. Yeah. And by the time that you hear us talking about it, you will no longer be able to see it. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a pile, a literal pile of theater happening in the Berkshires because summer is the season for theater in the Berkshires. There's cool things happening at Shakespeare and Company. There's guards at the Taj at Chester Theater. There They're is... an underwriter, we should disclose. Yes, these are... In fact, they both are yes. are underwriters, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go and see their Absolutely wonderful not. like little tiny father is happening at Barrington Stage. There's also going to be auditions for a rock opera called Lizzie at yet, <laughs> which is about Lizzie Borden. I've heard about this. <laughs> so if you're interested in being on stage, you can have an opportunity to do that Sunday and Monday at Gateway City Arts. That is exciting. Another yes. fun thing that's happening, and this is a little bit of full disclosure, it's a benefit for North Star, self-directed learning for teens, where two of my teens go 
or have gone. More disclosures. Yeah, more disclosures. <laughs> but um, they are the presenting sponsor of Circus Schmirkus, which um, we live in an area rich with circus performers. A lot of it has to do with Circus Schmirkus and a lot of the theater, uh, excuse me, the circus groups in East Hampton and in Southern Vermont. So people from our area have uh, studied as children and gone on to this mostly kid-based Circus Schmirkus. And then some of them go out onto the... Cirque yeah. du Soleil's of the world. But Circus Schmirkus will be in Northampton on Saturday and Sunday for performances at the Three County Fairgrounds. And it is a, a benefit for North Star Self-Directed Learning and for if, teens. If any of that gets you interested in clowning or circus arts in general, like Show Circus in East Hampton does training courses all the time. So check out their website, too. Now, go ahead. Oh, you, no, you got no, another no. one? No, no. You were about to, to do the Mine is post Weekend, though, so technically not Especially, a plywood ramp. Okay. Well, this weekend, of course, we talked about ragtime happening. Yes. But there's a whole bunch of events surrounding ragtime at Tanglewood that aren't just the performance on Saturday. Like, there's a talk on Friday about context with uh, one of the professors of theater from the Boston Conservatory. There's a constructed piece that's related to t- ragtime that's going to be happening in the afternoon before the performance, too, at Tanglewood. Both of those sound really cool. So, like, if you're interested, if ragtime was in of any appeal to you, you might want to see something that has a little extra context, a little extra weight to it. I only want to mention this because I just found out about it today, and I think it's very cool. But Micaiah McRaven, who has roots here in the Valley, but is an incredible drummer, mm-hmm. goes and spans the gamut. percussionist and DJ. Yeah, and he's doing a free performance at the Clark next Wednesday. So technically beyond the weekend, but Wednesday the 12th at the Clark uh, in Williamstown. Sometimes uh, it's good to plan way, way out. Yeah, I mean, now I have to feel like I have to plan my schedule around that because Makai McRaven, not to be missed, excellent percussionist. It'd be great to have him in here, but I think we would blow the doors off of New England Public Media (laughs) if that were the case. Won't be the first time. Tomorrow on the show, (laughs) tap into Nairobi. Although tap dance is an American art form, its origins are deep within the African diaspora, which makes it even more interesting that two tap dancers from the Berkshires have headed to Kenya to participate in the Nairobi Dance Life Festival. It's the first time that Americans have participated in the event, and we'll talk with Stephanie Lynx-Weber of the They Dance for Rain about their residency and dancing in a whole different context. Plus, the Wine Thunderdome takes another restaurant turn as we're joined by Amy McMahon of Mesa Verde to talk wine and about their recent work with Haitian refugees in Greenfield. And more in Greenfield with the Lava Center and their exhibit chronicling the history of black families in Greenfield. Our director is Tony, got a backhoe guy from a backhoe guy done. Our engineer is Betsy the Bolt Lankto. But not today. Our technical team is Bart, only using the bagel setting ranking. Kara, more reasons to hate Summer Foster and Punk Rude Boy too big. Thanks to this band, King Radio, playing tonight in Northampton at Bands on Brewster. See you tomorrow.